Well, you can have a seat. And uh, good morning, everyone. If we haven't had the pleasure of being acquainted, my name is Ben Clausen. I'm the college minister here at Creekside. Wow, okay, all right. How about that? Uh, and if you have met me before, I know what you're thinking. He's going to show me a picture of, of his baby, isn't he? And you would be correct. Uh, that's Ivy. Her name is Ivy June, but on the weekends we call her Aggie June. Um, yeah, I'm sorry to bring that up after yesterday, but uh, anyway, yeah, that, I mean, that has no relevance other than to show you a picture of my baby that's absolutely adorable. Um, because I'm a, I'm a dad, and that's kind of what dads do. Uh, but yeah, I'm really, really excited to, to get to be here with you guys today. It's, it's a really good morning. Um, before we dive in, I just wanted to give you guys a quick update on some fun things happening in the college ministry that we're really excited about. It's just going to take a minute, and then we'll dive into the passage. Um, but we've been talking, if you're a college student in the room, can I, can I get a big whoop if that's you? A whoop! Okay, there you go. Um, If you're a college student in the room, we've really been thinking a lot about, hey, what's the best way to connect all of the college students who really have a desire to integrate with the ministries at Grace Creekside and serve and be around families? And we're introducing here in a couple of weeks these amazing things called college nights that we are, man, over the moon excited about, that they're basically going to be these nights of worship and teaching on a big topic that is relevant to college students. And they're going to be up here at Creekside on Thursday nights, the last Thursday of every month. So we're really, really excited about those. Just wanted to give you a heads up that those are coming up. Put them on your calendar. And then we have a college, first ever college retreat. And the goal is to kind of channel some of that, uh, some of that cardia energy. Did you see it? The like, woo. So that's coming up on October 13th and 14th. And we'd love to see you there. Let me think, how do you transition from sort of an announcement into, I, there it is, speaking of college, when I was in college, uh, that's a good transition for you, I had a roommate named Christian, and Christian had this organization, and this organization was putting on a 5K race, and uh, he was sort of asking all his roommates, he was like, listen, not a lot of people are signing up for my 5K, uh, could you guys come my roommates and run this 5k with me. And I was like, okay, it's 10 bucks Saturday. It's a good thing to do for your roommate. So I signed up for this 5k. And I remember I showed up to this little 5k on a Saturday morning. You know, it's how long is a 5k? 3.16, something like that. So I show up and I'm not like a runner, but I had run a couple of times recently. So I'm, I'm feeling like pretty good. It was good weather. And I show up and they say, whoever wins this race actually gets a free two-person, five-course meal to the Campfire Restaurant. And I had just started dating Hannah, who was to be my wife at some point. But I was like, you know what a good way to impress a girl is? You win a 5K and you get a free five-course meal to a restaurant. That's, that's a pretty dang good date. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to put in my best effort. And I kind of start looking around me and I realize there's, there's about 15 people signed up for this race. And I'm kind of evaluating and I'm like, I think I... Not to, be, not to be boastful, but I'm like, I think I actually have a chance here. Like everyone that signed up for this race has more like bodybuilder, like workout bodies than like run long distance bodies. Or it's like the dads of the people in this organization. So I'm like, I think I, think I got a chance here. And no offense, dads, you can run too. I mean, I'm, I'm a dad now. Anyway, so I, I start running this race. And sure enough, like I take off really hard running this race. And then I sort of turn around and realize 
these guys are like, they're kind of like doing a, a little, a little slow. I think they're all going to run 11-minute miles. So I think I ran three, like, nine or 10-minute miles, and I won this race, and it was awesome. And we got to do the whole uh, date night at campfire, and it was a great experience. Um, but the reason I tell you that story is because I, I realized as I was about to run this race, I had this mindset. I realized to win this thing, I actually don't have to be amazing. I just have to be a little bit better than the rest of these jumps, right? <laughs> I don't have to be amazing. I just got to be a little bit better than all of them. And the reason that I, that I tell you that is because I'm afraid that a lot of us actually drag that same mentality into our spirituality, into our spiritual lives. We say, I, I actually don't know that I have to be amazing. I just have to be a little bit better than the general public, a little bit better than him or her. And we, we sort of do this in, in several ways. For some of us, we bring this into the idea of salvation. How do I get into heaven? Well, all I have to do really is just be a little bit better than most people. Or in the end, allow the scales to tip more good than bad. Or we do this with our spiritual health. We think, what's it take for God to really be pleased with me to live the sort of life that God wants for me to live? And we don't think the answer to that question is, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We think, well, really, I, I just don't have to do the big sins. I just have to be a little bit better than them. And we think like, you know, I'm not cheating on my spouse or my taxes. I'm not like, I'm a generally kind person. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done the big sins, you know? And we think we're living exactly the life that God has for us. But the danger there is, is our scales are off. Instead of comparing ourselves to the standards that God has for us, we're comparing ourselves to other people and basing our spirituality off of that, right? And the danger is when we do that, we put ourselves in a category that the Apostle Paul calls self-righteous. And that's, a, that's kind of a big word. I don't know that any of us would walk in here and identify ourselves as, well, I'm a self-righteous person. We, we don't tend to do that. But let me just give you a warning. The self-righteous person exists within every single one of us. We all have functioned as the self-righteous person or will be tempted to function as the self-righteous person, to judge other people and their spirituality, right? And today, the Apostle Paul, and as we are carrying on in our study of Romans, let me just, let me just give you a fair warning. He's coming for us. He's coming for us. He's going to ask and answer the question, is Christian spirituality simply be better than most? Is the path to heaven be more good than bad? And to answer that question, the Apostle Paul is going to take us through a three-step argument and lay out this argument. Number one, you're not better than most. Number two, you're not even close to good enough. And number three, your religion won't help. That's your sermon for today, so I know what you're thinking. Man, sounds really encouraging. Uh, baptisms, yay, and then this, this guy's just going to yam us. Um, well, let me just give you two reminders. Number one, well, it's not just me. Matt's going to come at you for the next two weeks as well, because if you've read the next couple of chapters in Roman, Romans, he kind of doesn't stop. But two, let's just, let's just remind ourselves that the beauty of the light cannot fully be grasped unless you're immersed in darkness. The beauty of the light cannot fully be grasped unless you're immersed in darkness. You ever been in a pitch black dark room and it's scary and then the flipping on of the light switch just makes everything better? That is what the gospel 
That's what I think a passage like this does to the gospel. That's what I think the passage like this does to the gospel. So today, we're going to see these three things. And really, my, my prayer is that we will see the gospel with greater clarity. We'll see the good news as what it is. Really good news with greater clarity for the first time today. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, um, join me in Romans chapter 2. And we're going to jump right in in just a minute. Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, little uh, synopsis of last week. Last week, we were in the second half of Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and Paul basically brought up the case that humanity is guilty of sin. He said that line, what can be known about God is plain, and yet people still deny his existence and give themselves over to all sorts of sins, right? And what he does is he starts listing off this litany of like the worst sins of mankind. He's listing off sin after sin after sin after sin. And the image that you're meant to get in your mind is that the self-righteous person is like, in his mind, he's standing back behind Paul. Like Paul's standing there preaching, listing off all these sins. And the self-righteous person is like, yeah, get them, Paul. They are guilty of those sins. And then Paul has this moment where he turns back to that guy which is all of us, remember, it's in all of us. And he points his finger and he says this in Romans chapter two, verses one through five. Therefore you, now notice, uh, let me just show you something interesting that's happening here. He switches from, um, he switches to the second person singular. He's now saying you. He's now speaking specifically to single person. He says you. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who does what? Who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, there was a lot in that, but let me just point out the first thing that he's showing us here. He's showing us first and foremost that you're not better than most. Again, the guy who he's speaking to would have thought, well, I'm better than all of the people, all of the people guilty of the sins that he listed off in the latter half of chapter one. That ain't me. That's not talking about me. And what Paul is saying here, do you, do you kind of catch it? Saying, actually, that is, that is you. We're talking about you too here. And as he switches into the second person singular, you, he uses this literary tactic called diatribe. You might've heard of it before, but essentially what he's doing is he's depicting this imaginary objector, someone that would object to the things that he's saying. And he's like foreseeing the objections that this person is gonna make. And he's arguing with him. He's saying, you might say this, but in fact, I say this. Ah, you might say this, but in fact, I say this. So what he's gonna do here is really our three main points, points are responses to objections. And the first objection is, well, I'm better than them. At least I'm better than them. At least I'm not committing those sins. And he says right here, guess what? Actually, you are. You're not better than them. You're not better than them at all. And again, he's, he's doing this. Um, and in doing this, he, he describes them as guilty right? So look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, 
every one of you who judges. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. So what he does here is he's saying, you're guilty too. And the word that he uses here is he says, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. And that word in the Greek is the Greek word anapologetos, anapologetos. And that's a word that really means you're without excuse or you're without uh, defense in a criminal court of law. It's a law term. So really what he does is he depicts, a, he depicts a courtroom. So picture with me right now, you've been accused of some crime. You're guilty of some crime and you're in a courtroom right now. You've, uh, you've, you've robbed a bank. Um, your life has taken a wild turn. You robbed a bank and now you're in court. And a person is the, the other lawyer. I should, I should have looked up law terms better. There's so many lawyers in here that are mad at me right now. The, the lawyer is saying uh, he's guilty and he lays out all the, all the arguments, right? He's like, he uh, he, he didn't even wear a ski mask. So like I saw, we saw his face. We got him on camera. His fingerprints are all over everything. And then what happens is it's, it's your turn to make your defense. But as you go to make your defense, you look to your lawyer and realize you actually have no lawyer. That it's just you there. And you realize, I don't have any way to defend myself because I actually did that crime. I actually did that crime. And what it's depicting right here is a person who stands in the court of law and they're guilty. And the reality is that he's not just depicting like the Texas courtroom. He's not even depicting like a federal court. He's depicting the courtroom of the holy God. The courtroom of the holy God. He's saying, you're gonna be in the courtroom of God, you who judge, and you're gonna have no excuse. You're gonna be without excuse. Why? Because you're guilty. You're guilty. You're just as bad as them. Why can he say this? Because what the, what the person who he's speaking to right here might say is like, well, I'm really not. Like, I'm not committing all of these sins that, that all these other people are. I'm not committing all these sins. But look what he says in verse one. You're guilty. You have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So the reason that he can say this, that they're not better than most, is first because they practice the exact same things. They practice the exact same things. And again, they would say, well, no, I'm not. I'm not a drug dealer or a bank robber or an adulterer. And he says, that might be true, but you're only looking at the, like, the external sins. And there are more sins than that. If you look back at the end of chapter one, he actually lists off such sins as um, gossiping and being prideful or boasting or disobeying your parents <laughs> or being unloving or acting ruthlessly. And essentially what he's, what he's saying is he's taking it just from like the outward external sins also to the internal sins. He's saying you're just as guilty of sin if you've sinned in your heart versus with your hands, right? You're just as guilty of sin if you've sinned in your heart. If you recall Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he made this exact same point. He was speaking to, to who in the Sermon on the Mount? Sort of the self-righteous Jews, lots of Pharisees. Remember what happened? Jesus came down to earth. He was the savior of the Jews. He was there to save all people. He was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And then the most, quote, religious of them said, no thanks, I'm not interested, because they thought they were good, because they were following the law, because they were moral. Remember what Jesus said to them? He pointed out in Matthew chapter five, you've heard it said in the days of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's pretty intense, right? What's he saying? Oh, you think it's about, about not murdering? 
Uh, You've been angry before? Well, guess what? You're just as guilty. And then he says it again a few passages later, a few verses later. You heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart with her. He's saying it again. You might think that it's just about these external sins, but I'm taking it to the point of the heart. Um, If you've had evil thoughts and desires, you are just as guilty as someone who's done evil things, right? I... Um, read this one quote from one scholar on this passage, and he said, the sin of the Jews was the same, but their sins were not. The sin of the Jews was the same, but their sins were not. The point that he's getting at with that quote is that you're still sinful, even though it looks different. You're all sinful, even though it looks different. That's the point that he's sort of getting at here. The first reason that they're guilty is because they do the same things. They do the same things. It might look different, but they're just as guilty. And then second, because they judge. Because they judge. Look back at the passage, uh, verse 1, one more time. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what he's saying is, by virtue of judging someone else, you're showing that you're guilty. Because what is judging someone else? It's an act of, is it an act of love to judge another person? No. And in Committing an unloving act, you're, you're sinning, right? So you cannot be both righteous and judgmental. The two do not exist in the same spheres. You can't be both. And in fact, Jesus said this again on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge or you too will be judged. One commentary said this, um, there's a natural tendency to justify ourselves for the wrong, for the wrong that we do by condemning people who do other evils that we think are worse. The Pharisee is always present in each and every one of us. The point that he's getting at is if you judge, you're guilty. If you judge, you're guilty. You've judged another person. Guess what? In God's court of law, you're just as guilty as them. To make a quick distinguishing clarifier here, what we're not talking about is a sort of righteous or... um, upstanding sort of evaluation of character based on conduct. So there's evaluation of a character based on conduct, and then there's judging. So picture uh, you're a dad, and you've got a 17-year-old daughter, and a boy wants to take her out on a date. I can't picture that scenario for myself for quite a few years, but I already hate it. Um, And what would be right and good if a boy wants to take your daughter on a date is for him to come over and you say, hey, We're going to go out back, and I'm going to ask you a a few questions for a few minutes. And you get to know him, and you evaluate his character. That, in fact, is right and good, to evaluate his character and determine, are you the sort of man, boy, who I'm willing to let my daughter go on a date with to the Chili's for 45 minutes or whatever you allow? Um, that's, That's right and good. What would be wrong is if you judge his worthiness of God's love, if you judge his value as a human being. That would be completely wrong. So, so it's a sort of fine line here between evaluation of character and judgment. But what we're talking about here is when you borderline, when you cross the line out of evaluation into judgment, when we make statements like, well, our family just doesn't hang out with those sort of people, or they're just idiots because they voted that way, or it, you know what I'm saying? That the act of judging someone as less innately human and valuable than, than us. Because you know what really the the problem with this is? We're not looking at someone as God looks at someone when we judge them. 
What's God see when he sees a sinner who, yeah, is totally guilty of sins that you can even publicly see? He sees a beloved child of his that he desperately wants to repent. He sees a beloved child of his, not someone that he's like, yeah, they're the worst, right? And in, in judging, we're not seeing people as God sees people. And this leads Paul to his conclusion in verse 2. He says this, and, and we're going to go much more quickly through the rest of these verses than we did verse 1. <laughs> he says this in verse 2. We know that the, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he switches pronouns again. He switches from the second person singular to the first person plural. If you're a, if you're a grammatic uh, grammar fan, <laughs> then this is <laughs> grammatic, grammar, uh, uh, something like that. We're moving right along. If you're a big fan of grammar, it's a good passage for you. <laughs> Circle all the U's and we's. It's a lot of fun. But now he says we. So he's basically saying, hey, everyone, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, right? Guess what? You practice such things. He's saying you practice such things. But again, the self-righteous person is blind to that reality because they make three errors in their judgment. They make three errors in their judgment. Verse three, verse four, verse five, show those three errors. Verse three, first of all, is they mistakenly think that they aren't under God's judgment. Look at verse three with me. It says this, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So what they're doing here is they're, right, they're operating as though there's, there's God's side and there's someone else's side. There's the side that's with God and the side against God. And they're sort of acting like, well, I'm on God's side, but then there's also that other side. And they are the ones that get judged by God. They're the ones that experience God's wrath. Not me, though. But in reality, the mistake in their judgment is they're along for the ride with everyone else who's going to be judged by the, the holy God. They make that mistake in their judgment because they don't think that they're guilty of sin. And then second, they think that because they're not being judged now, they'll never be judged. Look at verse five. It says this. Sorry, verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What these people do here is they look around and say, well, my life is actually good. Things are going generally well. I must, I'm clearly not being judged or experiencing the wrath of God right now, so I must be good to go. I must be living my life exactly how God wants me to. You ever had that moment before? You look around, you go, my life is looking really good right now. Things are working out financially with my job, with my family. And you think that, that means that everything's perfect, that you're perfectly obeying God. But in reality, you might be missing out on 2 Peter 3.9, which says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that they're not being judged, that many of us are not being judged right now is not because we're living life the way that God wants us to, but because God is kind, he's slow. And what he's doing is he's giving you years, he's giving you time to repent, saying, yeah, I'm going to let things remain the way they are right now, but that's because I'm patient. I'm going to let you have time to, to consider what you're doing and to, and to make a turn of your, of your ways and to start to follow after me. It's, it's basically what God is doing right now. And if, and if, in fact, you think, well, I'm good to go because my life isn't rough right now, he's saying that what you're functionally doing is 
presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. That word presuming also means condemning or despising or disdaining. He's saying that you are despising or condemning the kindness and forbearance and patience of your God by not choosing to repent for the things that you're doing. Saying you're condemning those things. You're functionally hating the kindness of God. Functionally hating the kindness of God and you're misunderstanding that God's not judging you right now, not because uh, he wants to sweep your sin under the rug, but because he's patient, but because he's patient. And then the final judgment in their thinking, or the final mistake that they make in their thinking is they think they're storing up treasures in heaven when they're really storing up wrath. Look at verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Sad reality is that these people are thinking they're about to strut their stuff into heaven and God's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. But in reality, what's waiting for them is not a pile of reward, but, but of wrath because they've been so blind to their sin. And why is this? I mean, it says it right in here, because oftentimes when your heart is hard, your eyes are blind. When your heart is hard, your eyes are blind, and their eyes are blind to their sin right now in this moment. And they miss the big point of our first, the first point of this passage, which is that you're actually not better than most. You're actually not better than most. Hey guys, my clicker's not working right now, so if y'all could get to the next slide, that'd be awesome. You're actually not better than most, is what they're saying. Um, Hannah reminded me this past week of the coin analogy. You might have heard this analogy before at camp or something like this, but essentially the analogy goes, um, picture sin as a coin. Sin as a coin. Every single sin we've ever committed is a coin. And what we do is we, sometimes we look at our own sin and we think it's like four coins high. We're like, I know I'm a sinner, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not that bad of a sinner, right? And we think, well, I got these four coins, but we look at other people and we think, oh my goodness, they've got, oh, they've got 40 coins. Like, they got a lot of sin. You seen what they did this weekend? They got a lot of sins piling up. And we look around and we think, my pile of coins is smaller than theirs. And therefore, we judge other people. We think of them as worse than us, right? Think of certain people as worse, quote, worse sinners than ourselves. And we judge them as less valuable or less worthy of God's love. We have this tendency to, to do this. But the, the point is, we are not looking at the coins from, from God's perspective, right? God looks at the coins from above. And what's he see? What do you see when you look at a pile of coins from above? Uno. One coin on everyone's plate, right? Everyone has one coin. God sees every single one of us as equally sinful, equally deserving of his grace. And when we fail to see that, we don't act as God acts. We don't act as God acts. So I just want to put the the words of this passage onto the screen for, for just a minute. Maybe now is the, the time that we, as a, as a church, as a people, need to allow God's kindness to lead us to repentance. Need to allow God's kindness to lead us to repentance and repent of our, of our judgment of other people. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. A lot of us, every single one of us, either has or will be tempted to, tomorrow even, to judge another person. To judge another person. This is a, this is a reality of our fallen nature. But man, what if, what if today were the day that as a church we said, God, I, I just leave that philosophy at the door, that I'm better than other people, that I'm more valuable or worthy of your love than they are, than they are, than they are. 
And God, today, would you help me to have your perspective on other people? How many see other people as you see them, as, yes, sinners, just like myself, equally worthy of your grace, equally worthy of your grace? The first point that Paul makes to this imaginary objector is that you're not better than most. You're not better than most. But then he foresees this second objection, right, where the person says, but I really am trying my best. Like, seriously, I know I'm not doing all those things, but I'm trying my best. I'm trying to, like, get my way to heaven. I'm, trying, I'm like, trying to earn my way to God's righteousness. Like, I'm trying really, really hard. And to that person, Paul says, okay, you want to talk about what it takes to earn God's favor, to earn a way into heaven? Okay, we can talk about this. And he goes on in verses 6 and 11 to say this, 6 to 11 to say this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So there's a lot going on here. But the point is, what he's showing them in these passages is that you're not close to good enough. You're not close to good enough. What he does here is he lays out this, basically, it's called a chiastic structure. And it's where he makes this series of arguments and then he mirrors those arguments again. So he's going to show them that God will judge fairly. And then basically that those who do good will get eternal life, right? Yay. And then those who do evil will suffer wrath. But then he makes the point again in reverse order, essentially. So look at the passage, and we're going to see how he says you're not even close to good enough. Verse 6, he said, God will render to each one according to his works. That word render is essentially like pay off. It's a, it's a payday. He's going to give a payday to each person according to his works. So if you, worked, if you make 10 bucks an hour, you worked four hours, he's going to give you 40 bucks, right? It's basically saying that's what God's going to do right here. And what will he do? to those who do good. Verse seven, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Basically what he means by these words is if you seek the things of, of the next life, if you seek the things above, glory and honor and immortality, he knows those aren't things that you're gonna seek or experience here, but they're things of the next life, heavenly things. If you seek after those things, if you do good persistently, then you'll get eternal life. Okay, seems simple enough. You do good things, you get eternal life. And then verse eight, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So he says, if you do good, you'll get good. But the opposite of that is also true. If you do evil, you'll receive wrath and fury. And then he repeats that again in verse nine. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So he repeats his argument again. Tribulation and distress, Bad news for those who do bad. And he uses this expression, the Jew first and also the Greek. Quick side note on that. The last time you saw that was in our theme passage for the series, Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. The Jews would have loved that passage. They would have said, yeah, see, we're the first to receive the good news of salvation. But then we see again here, like, well, yes, but there's also the flip side of that. It also means that you're the first to receive the judgment, the Jew first and also the Greek. So continue on with the line of thinking. Verse 10, he's gonna repeat what he said in verse seven, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 
God shows no partiality. He's going to reward those who do good with eternal life and those who do bad with judgment, with wrath. So the question is, this seems simple enough. It's a simple argument. So how do I end up on the good side of this scenario? How do I do good and earn eternal life? Well, it says a couple of things in this passage. He says, first, verse 7, um, if you are persistent in well-doing for glory and seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. It's that Greek word hupomone, which means you endure. You persist in doing good. So what's he saying there? You have to keep on doing good despite all your circumstances always. And then uh, verse nine shows the flip side of that. It's tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, who does evil, either in thought or action. So do you sort of see what he's saying here? If you want to find yourself on the good side of this scenario, great. Just be perfect. Okay, just be perfect. As, again, what Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. We're, I think we think that Paul had in mind the Sermon on the Mount when he wrote this. Because, again, the words of Jesus, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What he's saying is if you theoretically want to, if you hypothetically want to earn your way into heaven, great. What's the standard? Perfection. Perfection. Um, is it hypothetically possible that my daughter, Ivy, could turn out to be six foot eight and play in the WNBA? Sure, anything's possible. Is it practically true? Is it practically gonna happen? No way, Jose. Like, I'm, I'm about as tall as we get in the Clawson family, five foot 10, pretty average. Is it hypothetically possible? Yes, but will it ever actually happen? No way, no way. And that's the same exact point that he's getting at here, he's saying, you want to earn your way into heaven? You can't. You won't. You already didn't. If you've sinned once in your life, you've already found yourself on the bad side of this equation. In other words, you're not even close to good enough. <laughs> it's not even like the scales might be tipped more good than bad. It's like this sort of a thing. That's the point he's getting at. You're not even close to good enough. You're not even close to good enough. It's like these people have been seeing the world in two camps, God's camp and the good camp and the bad camp. And they, they're thinking, you know, I'm in, I'm in God's camp. It's me and my friends and, I don't know, Mother Teresa in like the good camp. We did good. But then there's everyone else in the world in the bad camp. But what God's saying is actually the good camp, the people who do more good than bad or do perfectly good, it only has one member and that's Jesus. Only one person has ever been able to live life perfectly. But he foresees one more objection, one more objection. And that objection is, but seriously, I do the right things. I pray, I go to church, I'm in a Bible study, I give to the church, I treat my neighbors well, and I've been in church the whole life, my whole life. And to that person, he closes his argument by saying, well, your religion won't help. Your religion won't help. So let's read the last several verses, 12 through 16. He says this, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ." Again, there's a lot going on in these verses, but the big picture point that he's getting at is that essentially your religion won't help. Your religion won't help. So 
break these verses down a little bit. First, verse 12, he says this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The principle that he's getting at right here that he'll lay out is that God is a fair judge. God judges fairly. And then second, that God judges according to what he reveals. So everyone's going to face God's judgment, just the standard by which they'll be judged will look a little bit different, right? So first, think about the Gentile. The Gentile, if you, if you need a quick reminder, Jews are those who were given the law, who were in the family of Abraham. Um, throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles are essentially anyone who is not a Jew. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So it's most of us in this room. And what he says to us Gentiles is essentially you haven't been given the law, so you won't be judged by the law, but you'll still perish, right? So look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So basically what he's saying, what he's saying is that Gentiles often still do moral good, Right? Even people who are not Christians have an innate sorts sense of morality, right? Like it's one of the best arguments for God's existence that you and me, despite our theological beliefs or backgrounds, can agree that there are some things in the world that are right and there are some things in the world that are wrong. And what Paul says here is that when you think like that, you're showing that really you have the law written on your heart. Your conscience shows that there's a God. And what he's saying here is that yes, that's true. You're showing that you have the law written on your hearts, and when you do moral good, you're showing that, that you're actually subject to, to an unwritten law, and you're choosing good or bad. But look at the end of verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's kind of a funny wording, but here's the point. You who have a law written on your heart, even if you don't have the, the Old Testament law, you're still going to violate the law that's written on your heart. You're still going to choose to do the bad that you know to be wrong instead of the good that you know to be right, right? Does that make sense? Like you're still going to choose bad over good, even if you don't have the, the law of Moses. So what he's saying is it's a different standard of judgment, but you're still guilty, Gentiles. And then he goes and speaks to the, to the Jews circle back around to verse 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So essentially what he's saying is, Jews, if you want the fact that you're religious, the fact that you have been handed the law, if you, or if you expect, if you wrongly think that because I'm in the family of the Jews, because I've grown up religious, because I've been given the law, just by virtue of having it, you're righteous, you're actually wrong. Because the standard is not having it, it's not sitting in church, it's not going to Bible study. The standard is actually doing it, not hearing it, but doing it. It's less about just having some truth told to you, and it's much more about doing and obeying the truth that's been handed to you, right? That's what he's getting at here. The standard is not having it, but actually doing it. So what he's getting at here is that there's a day coming in verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is an intimidating verse, right? Because it says that God's going to judge our secrets. Judge our secrets. Um, 
But what he's getting at in this line of argument is that on that day, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, religious, not religious, one day God's going to bring all of your sins to the big screen. He's going to put them on full display in his courtroom. And he's going to ask you after running through them, why should I forgive you of all of that? And if you answer, because I was more good than bad, because I was religious, because I was better than other people, because I went to church, because I prayed before dinner, because I gave to the church, because I served when I could, because I, because I, because I. The bad news is you might have done those good things, but those good things will not help you out in those moments. The good things that you've done are not what saves you, not what allows you to live the life that God has for you. The bad news is that your religion, quote, religion, in the end, won't help you. So what he's showing us here, again, is that we're actually hopeless. (laughs) We're not better than most. In fact, we're not really better than anyone. We're all just as guilty of sin. And then second, that you're not even close to good enough. In the end, like I said, it's not like the scales might tip in your favor more good than bad. No, it's not even close. And then finally, your religion in the end won't save you. In the end, we are hopeless. We're hopeless. Let's pray. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> just kidding. A few years ago. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> a few years ago, I went on down to David Gardner's Jewelers. This message is brought to you by David Gardner's. Just kidding. Um, and I went to buy an engagement ring for my then-to-be wife, Hannah. And I remember, I was a senior in college, had about 150 bucks to my name, and I went to pick out this little diamond ring, and I remember the jeweler picked it up with these tweezers, this little diamond that I was going to buy, and held it up for me to look at. And he said, can you see it? (laughs) And I said, no. (laughs) So what he did was he brought out a black cloth, and he set the ring on the cloth, turned out all the lights, put on a spotlight, gave me a magnifying glass, (laughs) right? But let me just tell you, the beauty of that diamond shone so bright because it was against a dark backdrop, because it was against a dark backdrop. Let me just remind you that the beauty of the gospel can only fully be grasped when we see it against the dark backdrop of our sin. That's why we sang that song, our sins they are many, but praise God, his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And the good news is that the gospel tells us that God didn't want us to be separated, so he took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, and though he earned all of the perfect things, glory and honor and immortality that we saw in these verses, he took all of the bad things. He took all the wrath and punishment of God on the cross. But then the beautiful thing is that he rose again three days later. And the, real, the reality that we can walk out of here with is that we're not better than most, but Jesus was better than all. That Uh, you're not even close to good enough, but the good news is that Jesus was and that your religion won't help, but relationship with Jesus will. That is the good news that we can cling to. The beauty of the gospel shines so bright when put against the dark backdrop of our sin. When we realize that we're truly sinful, only then can we truly grasp the heart-grabbing beauty of the gospel. So today, let me just leave you with this. Would Would you leave from this place and ask for God's grace? Ask for God's mercy. What he's doing here in a passage like this is he's making us desperate, parched for the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you've thought all your life, all I have to do to be right in God's standards is be more good than bad, let me just 
let today be the day that you leave that philosophy at the door and you realize you're one of us, you're a sinner in need of grace, and that inexhaustible grace is available to you today in Christ Jesus. That grace is available to you today in Christ Jesus. And if you have believed that truth, man, would today be the day that you allow God's kindness to lead you to repentance. And today's the day that we as a church leave our religion and self-righteousness and judgment at the door and ask for God's grace and show God's grace to the world. Would today be the day that we do that? Would today be the day that we realize that one day when we stand at that throne room and when, we, when God asks, why should I forgive you of all of this? The answer is never because I, but because he. Because he. So let's close just with a, a quick story as told by Jesus in um, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We'll close with this. Jesus said this about a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to pray. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, adjusters, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God, we just thank you that in you is found righteousness and forgiveness and grace. And we pray today that you would help us to experience that, to choose that, to choose your grace, not judgment, not self-righteousness. God, remove our self from the way. Help take me away from relationship. Help, help take me away as a barrier and help God us to just really understand that you do love us and that you meet us with your grace. Today, help us to really walk out of here grasping the gospel with a greater clarity and understanding its beauty more vibrantly than we ever have before. We pray this all in your name, King Jesus. Amen.